This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and you may have noticed in the last couple of years, we had this little global pandemic. Some things were the same. Some things were very different. And one of the things that was very different is we are, are or have been in, depending on who you talk to, an inflationary period with higher interest rates. There's been some fairly significant volatility in the market. And I know among the people that I'm talking to, a lot of them are questioning, what is going on? What do you do? How do you invest? And so to help me to unpack all of that is Chris Fleming. Chris, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Thanks for Chris, having me on. Chris, for uh, people in the world who don't know you, why don't you give us your CV here so at least they get the, the bullet points? Okay. Yeah, uh, pretty plain vanilla. I'm an interesting guy, I guess, to my family, maybe not to other people. <laughs> um, headquartered in Sarasota, Florida. I uh, have a financial planning practice here with my business partner, serve about 1,200 clients, business owners, and retirement plan stuff, and then um, married, got four kids, we recently got a dog, and uh, caught up in all that with all their activities. Really enjoy what I do, really enjoy what we do here and, and how we do that, so I'm looking forward to sharing whatever wisdom I can. Yeah, that sounds good. What what types of clients are you guys typically working with? Yeah, so an ideal client for us usually falls into a couple of um one might be what we consider to be a life transition so that typically could be retirement it could be a divorce it could be the sale of a business something of that nature um it also could be people who are very close to that event very close to retirement so they need guidance counsel and strategy how to set that up and um the majority of the people we work with i would um say are have amassed enough for a comfortable retirement. They're just unsure of kind of how to structure it. They want to make sure that they don't run out of money and they've got some legacy issues, some things that they want to do to hopefully leave uh, assets or money to their future generation kids. Yeah. So you have to, you, you have to be the fortune teller. Yeah. Well, or at least the, the boat guide, the <laughs> person, the person steering the boat. Um, the people that we work with, they want to have a partnership with someone. They, mm -hmm. they want to delegate a lot of the responsibility of their financial affairs to someone that they implicitly trust. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we, we take that responsibility very seriously and we're happy to do that. So then they can focus on other stuff that's more important to them or that they like better other than having to worry about what's going on with their finance or the economy, what the president said or what. What's going on in Russia? Yeah, whatever happens to be the, the top line in the newspaper for the day. Yes, the breaking news. The breaking the, news. There you go. The um, catastrophe du jour, right. if you want to call it that. Yes. There's a, well, there's an interesting word you used, which was trust. And you know, I kind of teed this up as we're beyond the pandemic. But during the pandemic, when we were mostly uh, siloed off of people, although I know in my state and your state, maybe that wasn't quite as much as in other places. But, you know, what, what sorts of things do you guys try to do or does your team try to do to kind of build that trust with your clients? Yep. Yeah. So I'll, I'll first talk about just how we establish it with people. And then uh -huh. secondly, I can talk a little bit about how we did that 
during the pandemic. Um, so it is very important for me when I meet with somebody that we determine in that first meeting that we're a good match. And if we are, then I want to have, as I mentioned, a collaborative relationship. And part of that is trust. Now, I think that trust it is just expected. So if someone comes in and meets with, they're probably under the, under the assumption that I'm already trustworthy. And a lot of people, I think, in, in professional services industries think that trust is the ultimate the client. But I actually disagree with that. I think it's baseline and I think it's important. But what I think you can get to another level, which is the client or the person that you are working with trust you and they have determined that because of your relationship, the conversations you've had and the guidance that you've given them, that you that they can implicitly know that you have their best interest. And when you give them counsel or a recommendation, suggestion, that that is coming from a place where you truly want what is best for them. Okay, so Mm -hmm. um, part of that is and how you accomplish that is doing what you say you're going to do and having integrity, those buzzwords. But the other part of it, I think, is uh, staying in communication. And that kind of leads into the pandemic. So it's very common for people in our industry when bad things are going on to hide under the desk, all right? So if I just ignore it or if I don't communicate or if I don't say anything, then everything will be fine and hopefully it'll pass, all right? And that's, I guess that's true that it does eventually pass, but that doesn't give people a really good warm fuzzy point about what their advisor might be up to or what they think. So we felt it necessary and our responsibility to stay in contact with people throughout the pandemic um, and throughout tough times, whether it was the COVID drop or 0708 when the financial crisis happened, um, to stay in contact with them and let them know we're here. You can contact us. We'll listen. That doesn't mean necessarily that we need to act or that we need to do anything, but let's talk about a possible plan and let's put things in context and decide if what's going on warrants that we make a change. And two, is what going on, does that mean that somehow your plans that you've laid are now blown up and are not going to occur and you're not going to be able to do what you've set out to accomplish? And in pretty much all cases, those things aren't true. It's just that they they want to be listened to and they want to be reassured that what is going on is going to pass and that they'll still be okay. Yeah, and I really like that. And it sounds like part, part of the baseline then during the pandemic and I'm assuming after the pandemic, too, was just having that consistent communication so people know, like you were saying, like you, you're you hearing them. You hear their concerns, you're taking their concerns into consideration, and then giving them the counsel that they need based on what you perceive as their best interests. Yeah, because I noticed during the pandemic especially that people were probably more lonely, they were more scared, they were more anxious. I mean, for a while there, everyone was cut off. You weren't supposed to be within six feet of people or in a room with someone more than 15 minutes. Um, and then the rest of the time, you're supposed to be cleaning surfaces and all that. So um, that that loneliness, that anxious went way, way up. And oftentimes, the conversations I might be having with the clients were the only people that they were talking to that day or that week. Um, so we can't take that lightly. And we have to be able to listen to people and what they're really saying and then understand that they that they were going through that. Because I think one of the um, pandemic, one of the things that the pandemic caused was that everyone started thinking about their mortality a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, and the control they had over their life. So pre-pandemic, everybody thinks, yeah, I got complete control of my life. I'm controlling the path. I know what's going on. Um, everything's within my grasp. I can influence this and I can influence that. 
But then with the pandemic, the people around them either are getting sick or some people unfortunately loss or death. Um, and it touched everybody in some way. Um, and now maybe they're saying, okay, well, maybe I don't have as much control over my life as I thought. Um, and that changes how they make decisions. And it also changes the types of things that they're willing to talk about with an advisor or a professional service um, in regards to their overall financial plan. Yeah, it's really interesting because it doesn't it just emphasize to you how much it's a human endeavor and not an in, say investing or money endeavor. Yes. Well, that 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 is the reason that I like what I do is because of interactions on a human level, and all of us are craving and to some degree, and especially with the pandemic, we want meaningful human interaction, right? And so you want that with people you love and people that you're close to, but you also want that with people that you're doing business with if you can accomplish that. So it doesn't mean you have to be best friends, but you want meaningful human interaction. You want to be listened to. And and I think in a lot of ways, when people partner with me, they also want to be led, not not led where I'm hitting them over the head and saying, this is what we're going to do. And you have no say in it, but they're partnering with me because they want me to give them guidance and recommendations on what they need to do. Um, and even if that decision or that thing might be a hard thing. Because sometimes the right thing to do isn't the easy thing. It's actually going to be hard and it's going to be uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. Right, right. But if you're if you're in that position and, you, and you've built that relationship, then you're able to give that advice more meaningfully, I, yes. I think is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, and it's received probably better, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not as an attack. Yeah. There's lots of people that tell, like to tell people what to do. It's just, it's just, is that person in a position to receive it from the person that's giving it to them? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we joke a lot that, uh, for example, practicing law would be easy, but for the people. Right. Um, but I, that really what we're trying to dig at is that the legal components are controllable mm-hmm. that you can, you know, yeah, there, there are areas where you don't know the exact answer, but you know that you don't know the answer. But when you're dealing with human beings, it's not that you don't know the answer. It's that you don't know the answer and you can't even necessarily expect what the answers could be because people throw you curveballs constantly. Yeah. And that's what keeps it lively. Yeah. Well, and that's the challenge. And that's the, the part, I guess, that every person's different. Their personality is different. So what might help me motivate someone to take action on something might not work for somebody else. That's where the listening component comes in, mm-hmm. asking questions, getting maybe to the issue or the problem that's keeping them from moving forward or the obstacle that might be in place to get them to implement something. Um, that's what's interesting to me. Yeah. Well, now that we, you know, let's, let's assume we're beyond the pandemic here. I guess that's not really a scientific conclusion, but let's just assume that that's true. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, then, you know, do you think things have fundamentally shifted in terms of how people are planning or viewing their planning? <clears throat> uh I thought about this prior to us talking today. I think some of it I touched on already, but um, mm-hmm. just on a high level, a surface level, I think the ways that people are open to meeting, that got fast forwarded about 10 or 15 years. So pre-pandemic, I couldn't get, now this is generalizing, I couldn't get anybody over 65 to do a Zoom call, right? Because it was too, whoa, whoa, that is too yeah, right. technical. Right. I don't, I don't get all this internet stuff. I don't trust it. Is that really you on the other side of the camera? I have to download this app and get hacked. So that all got thrown out the window because then the only way you could meet with usually their doctor during the pandemic was if you did a video 
chat. So I think that got fast forwarded. That definitely changed. But now I think people are more open to having cross-border relationships in their states and mm-hmm. stuff like that because they don't necessarily have them in person in order to develop a level of trust and to work with them. Okay. Right. Um, I think that's one thing. And then the for me, I've seen the, the things that people are willing to discuss and want to implement that's changed to a certain degree. So we've talked about mortality. So if people had an event where they knew someone or a family member or that passed away or got put into extended care because of the pandemic, um, they see what that does maybe to their finances or their situations. And so they're more apt to want to talk about how they can put things in place that might help with them. And then I think the other thing is, is um, people are more interested in having maybe economically conversations about things that are event driven. So the pandemic was, that's, that's an event. That was an event driven economic impact. So the stock market went down primarily when COVID started because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting when you get into when downturns are driven by events versus bad economic data or bad economies or economics. um, It's interesting what happens with the recovery in those situations. So that's helped to a certain degree put things in perspective for people, um, making the distinction between those. Mm, interesting. So you think it gave people a little more clarity on on market reactions or maybe well, on their own reactions to the market? Yeah, well, I, I would call perspective. All okay. right. So and, I, you know, I don't want to get into this, but generally when a when a market declines, stock market is because of an event, it's event driven pandemic mm-hmm. or a war or something like that. All other things being equal, usually it's a V-shaped downturn and recovery. So very sharp decline, very fast, almost like the letter V. Mm-hmm. Um, when things are more underlying economy or underlying economic problems, like the financial crisis in 07 and 08, and there was a bunch of stuff that was fundamentally wrong economically, those events also pretty sharp decline, but recoveries are more, they're broader, they take long. So not like a V. More like a sharp down and then a, a gradual increase. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to tell people, you know, I think the pandemic is event driven. Um, that helps them with the perspective on because everyone's always asking me, well, things will get when will things get better, which is <laughs> unknown. No one knows for sure. Right. I can give you my opinion, but I don't want you to base the value of, of our relationship on whether I can guess correctly. Right. Um, but uh, that helped them understand, oh, OK, well, if it's event driven. Here's the average time of recovery. If it's bad economy, this is maybe what we're looking at. And again, does that mean I should change what I'm doing? And does that mean that I'm not going to be okay? Those are really the two answers we're looking when they're asking me that. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that the types of planning that you're doing for many people are they're drawn out over a longer time horizon than a single event or maybe even a single cycle. Yes. Uh, so it's not as tied to taking advantage of those events and those cycles, although that could be a component of it. Yes. And guessing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If we've got if you've come into some money and you and we decide that we invest that some, <clears throat> then it might be important where we are in that recovery cycle or where we think we are um, in terms of the speed at which we might want to invest it and we want to do it. Still can't get it completely right. It's really hard to do. Um, if we're already invested and this is a long term thing where you're trying to grow wealth for your family or you're trying to generate an income that you can't outlive or you're trying to make your assets live past your life expectancy, um, then much longer time frame, we can give you a lot of context or all those different cycles that happen over the time. Now, I tell people that still doesn't mean that 
I'm telling you, you can't be anxious or worried. All right. Um, if you get your statements or you've looked at the market since the first of the year, how could you not be? You wouldn't be human. Right. So I can't tell you to be a robot and not have any emotion. But again, we go back to does that mean we have to act? And does that mean that you're not going to be okay and work out? So as long as those two questions right. are no, then we will be okay. And it doesn't right. mean then it's not that they then get rid of the emotion, but they've gotten my, my take on it. And, you know, I tell them, I take this very seriously. I'm only going to be anything other than honest with you. If I think you're in a bad way and we need to make changes and you're, you're going to run out of money, for example, or then I'm going to tell you. Um, but thankfully, that is majorly not the case yeah. with most people. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Well, and you mentioned, um, you know, people asking, like, well, when are things going to get better? I remember one time a client was talking with me and 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 the client said something like, oh, I got to I got to invest in the market right now because the market is down. And my response was, how do you know it's down? And they were they were very thrilled with my response. They're like, right. well, uh, it's it, it definitely is. Like, how do you know this is the bottom? How do you know this is really down? This could be the top of something. You don't know that. Right. I, used I think to they ask, did it anyways, by the way. They didn't, yeah. they didn't listen to me. <laughs> right. I used to ask people, uh, which market are we talking about? Right. You know, the bond market, international markets. Yeah, the sneaker markets, the uh, yeah, wine the market. gold bullion market, the wine yeah. market. Yeah. NFTs. What is it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, do you, I mean, do you have you changed anything in the way that you're, say, if you're doing any sort of asset management or your asset managers mm-hmm. are, are looking at portfolios, are they are they are you making adjustments based on things like inflation rates and things like that? Trying to take yeah. advantage of rising rates. Yep. Um, I think the and again, we'll be on a really high level. So we have our own internal uh, portfolios that we manage in-house. Yeah. And then when when we're and those are more uh, passive macro type things. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're looking for something that is different than that, where there might be some market timing involved or the attempts to try to mitigate downturns, take advantage of things that are taking place, then we feel like that it's better for us to outsource those types of money managements to um, third parties that do a good job of that. And then we have to do due diligence on whether they actually ever say they're doing. Right. Um, but we have made some, I think just in general, we have made some macro shifts. So from a interest rate standpoint, it makes a lot of sense shorter on the, on the duration of the bonds. So if you have bonds in your portfolio or bond funds or ETFs, you want to be shorter duration. Um, and then the other shift that um, took place is, um, if interest rates are going to go up and you're going to have an inflationary environment, you might have a recession. Generally, blue chip dividend paying or what they call value stocks are more in favor during those times. Mm-hmm. And so we made a shift earlier in the year to increase that allocation that we had to an asset class that's called value. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things have um, both helped us to mitigate some of the downturn that's taken place. But reality is, if you're in the stock market in any way since January, you've experienced some level of decline. What we try to do is we don't want our clients running the same roller coaster as the indexes or the overall market. So if we're going to go through a period where their accounts are going to be, we want to try to limit that or mitigate um, that decline during those periods. Still be in a position when the market recovers, then to participate in that as well. Right. Because if you want to catch those recoveries, you also have to be in there when there's some downturn as well, but you just don't want to be 
I mean, you you could just invest in an index if you wanted to ride the same roller coaster. Right. Right. Yeah. No. That that's uh, it's interesting because it's it's fairly consistent. I can't say that's a hundred percent consistent, but it's fairly consistent. Um, when I talk with a lot of financial advisors um, who are also trying to do what is in the best interest of their of their clients, the 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 viewpoint is similar. It's mm-hmm. you want they're they're trying to get their clients some exposure to the market to the extent they can convince people to have some exposure to the market, and then trying to also have some uh, exposure to outside of the stock market that might mm-hmm. limit the volatility. Yep. And I think a, a good chunk of that is is driven by client psychology in a lot of yes. ways, and maybe time horizons too. Because if you're dealing with a retiree, obviously they may not be they might not be willing to ride those market waves the same as somebody who's in their 30s. Yes. Now there, you bring up a good point there because there is different schools of thinking or ideas on when someone gets to the point where they're at a financial independence or mm-hmm. retirement or they're stopping to work from their main job. Mm-hmm. So. The traditional approach is you simply invest all of the money uh, in a certain asset allocation. Let's use the example 60 stock, 40 bond. And then you take a systematic withdrawal that you think is sustainable from that portfolio, either annually or monthly or quarterly. Um, And then you hope that the return of that portfolio keeps up and outpaces what you're taking out, which that can work. And that's called like a total return approach. And that, so that can be successful, but a lot of the success of that depends on the amount that the person's taking. And the bigger driver is, is what happens in the markets within the first few years of them starting that withdrawal. They call it sequence of returns. But, um, so if the person has a flat or a down stock market when they start out, just because of coincidence, um, then much more of a risk of the money running down or having trouble and keeping up with the withdrawals rather than an up market. And we've already determined that's kind of unknowable or not sure what happens. So right. there is some other methods where you can kind of segment the money to where the money you're not going to need for, let's say, 10 years or more, that's where you're taking the risk. But the money that you might be using for your withdrawals or your income the next one to five or seven years, those things are in non-stock market type places, um, non-risk places. And so then if, if that if that part of the portfolio goes down a lot, well, that's not money that we're going to use for 10 years. So it can go through a cycle and it's likely it'll be higher 10 years from today. Um, so we we've seen doing that with people, psychologically speaking, bringing that up. That helps them a lot because then they can say, oh, OK, well, my paycheck or what I'm taking out isn't coming from that account that's going down right now. Um, my income is coming from a place that doesn't have any risk associated. So then I can remind them of that. That helps them, Brett, stay invested with that other. Because that's really the thing is trying to keep people from doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, which is panic. Take it all out. Right. And we know that this is things are down. So that helps us to kind of keep people from making that what I call that's one of the big bad financial decisions when it comes to retirement income stuff, which is primarily do with clients. Yeah. Very interesting. That's like the opposite of total return. That's the yes. you know, segmented return, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a new concept. I didn't invent it. You can call it like a time segmented approach or a bucket mm-hmm. approach. Um, but you, you hit it on the head. It really speaks to the psychology for people. Right. With that first example where it's just total return, Imagine you start taking money out and six months later, you're getting your statements every and it's going down $10,000 and you're taking money out, right? 
So that does something to a person. They think they need to act. Well, we have to do something. At this pace, we'll run out of money in, in the calculation, run out of money in, right. or whatever. So right. um, even though you and I know it doesn't really work like that, you can see why someone would. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I I started my career in the Great Recession, and I remember looking at the balance sheets and the the client statements during the Great Recession, not great reading. And then I remember reading them in, say, 2020, far more interesting reading. Yeah. And I remember reading them during the pandemic. And you can see, like, there was no way, say, in 2010, 11, 12, that anybody was going to predict exactly what was going to happen in the next 10 years. And for most people between, say, 2010 to 2020, I would say on balance, at least of, of our clients, they made tremendous amounts of money between 2010 and 2020. And I just recall very vividly that in 2010, nobody was feeling like they were going to make a lot of money in the next 10 years. No, no. Well, and even if you listen to predictions of experts that go on, um, those people, you know, they always track that, like, how right were they? Well, there's no uh, real con- there's no real consequence ever to them being wrong. They still get to keep so they can make well, yeah. they can ma- they can make <laughs> predictions, and if they're wrong, it's no big deal. Now, every once in a while, they'll hit it right on the head, right? And then they write a book, and now they'll they let you know. A, now they become an expert. That's right. So now everyone wants their opinion. Oh man, I remember I used to go to these uh, annual economic forums that the I think it was the local C- uh, CFP society put together. They're very interesting and they'd have some interesting speakers, but I remember several years in a row they had somebody come down. They were at a uh, asset management firm in Seattle and every single year this person would just rail against the nonsense of Amazon and how Amazon makes no money and it's just a sham and the stock price is a bubble and, uh, you know, they were, they were building all these luxury apartments in Seattle and for these Amazon employees, but this company was going nowhere. And so it was just all fluff. And I don't recall that person coming back in later years and amending their statements, but they were very certain that they were correct about Amazon. I recall that very vividly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if they're convinced that it's the truth and they can look for research that might support that truth, we all do this. We have that bias, you know, where it's, we want to look for things that support the opinion we have. Um, then you can become convinced that it is really the truth. But if a million people say something foolish, it's still a fool. Now, no one, no one knew for sure on the Amazon thing. No. That, at that time, but it's because a bunch of people. Yeah, no, that's very true. No, I think it gets to the, the point about you can't predict the future. I mean, nobody has, in, in the case of Amazon, nobody at that point, other than a very few people, had sufficient amount of data in their mm-hmm. hands to be able to make that kind of assessment. Right. They were looking at normal things, mm-hmm. but things that weren't that helpful about <clears throat> the potential growth trajectory of a company. They were looking at balance sheets and yeah. things like that, financial right. reports. Their P.E. ratio. And they, yeah. they look at that and say, oh, it's way out of whack. We've never seen one like this ever before. Not right. sustainable. Right. Well, it, it was an industry that it was a disruptor industry that hadn't really happened or hadn't really occurred yet. So mm-hmm. some of that stuff's kind of thrown out the, the window. When that- yeah. Same. Yeah. Same thing with. You mentioned like disruptor industries. I remember the same sort of narrative around companies like Uber and Lyft and like, well, you know, all the regulations are going to hem them in. They're never going to be able to scale this company. All the taxi companies are going to fight against this. They're not going to have access to the major markets. I remember there was a huge fight at the time. Uh, 
you know, mid 2018s uh, in San Francisco at the airport and the airport didn't want to let these lift cars with these ridiculous mustaches show up and pick up passengers and all this stuff. And then almost overnight, it all changed. Yeah. And nobody probably other than people really inside those companies knew what was possible. Yeah. Right. And there, there wasn't any whoops. I was, I missed that one. No, (laughs) I don't recall. Nope. They were probably buying remember. that. They were probably buying the stock all along. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> hedging their hedging their bet, right? Uh, well, Chris, I I really appreciate your time. If people are trying to find you, how's the best way for them to find you, or what yeah. is the best way for them to find you? Yeah, the best way to do that is just our website, LPF Larry Paul Friend, Advisor E V I S O R S dot com. Um, there's info on our services on there. We have a link to the podcast that I do that Brett you were on recently. And um, also a way to get in contact with them. So that's the best place for them to go. Yeah, perfect. Well, we'll also put all the, that information in the show notes, too, so people will be able to find you there. So anybody yeah. looking for Chris can run him down. Uh, a very useful source of entertainment and knowledge at the same yes. time, as everybody's I'm, now I'm, well aware. I'm easy to run down. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks, Brent. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.